We're going to read in just a moment Hebrews 9, 1 to 10. But by way of review, it's been a couple of weeks since I've stood before you and opened God's Word. Last time we were together, we began to explore and to, to look at and to try to discern what's new about the new covenant, a covenant that God has cut, that he has secured, not with the blood of animals, not with the blood of bulls and goats, but with the holy, precious, blameless blood of the Lamb of God, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. We also saw that the the Old Covenant, and remember now, when I refer to the Old Covenant, I'm juxtaposing it and contrasting it with the New Covenant, that is the, the Old Covenant administration there at Sinai, as it's juxtaposed to the New Covenant, as it's found in Jeremiah 31, cut and secured in Jesus Christ. We saw that the Old Covenant, which included the law, the Levitical priesthood, the the tabernacle, the sacrifices, was rendered obsolete in that it's no longer binding. It no longer has a binding authority. We saw in Hebrews 8.5 that these things, the the Old Testament covenant ceremonial law, these things served as a, a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. We saw them as types, as as shadows of of the heavenly reality that God has in Jesus Christ in heaven. We also noted that the the Old Covenant, Mosaic Covenant, had two principal limitations. Yes, it had limitations. First, the Old Covenant, the blood of bulls and goats, could not provide atonement. It could not secure forgiveness forgiveness. Of sins, You see, it had no spiritual efficacy. It could not bring about what it commanded. The law never can bring about what it commands. We saw as we looked at this in contrast to the gospel, making that hermeneutical, that, that biblical understanding and difference, differentiation between law and gospel, we saw that the gospel, on the other hand, as opposed to the law, is sheer promise. It alone can achieve its intention by granting sinners new hearts of flesh with the law of God now written no longer on stone, but written by the finger of God himself and the power of the Holy Spirit on the heart that now he's turned to flesh. Right? He's taken away the heart of Adam that hates the law, hates God, suppresses the truth and unrighteousness, creator who's forever blessed. We see, that's how we come into the world. That's why you need new birth. You must be born again to see the kingdom of God. It's not enough just to try to do better, to partake of the the rituals of Christianity. You must be born of the Spirit. The Word of God is clear. You have a cobra heart. It's sick and desperately wicked. No man can know it. You need a new heart. You need resurrection, just like Mr. Jones prayed. You need resurrection from the dead. And that's what God does in Jesus Christ. That's what he does in the new covenant. You see, he gives us a law, rather a love for the lawgiver. And in turn, we have now a love for his law, to, not as a, a rule of, of, of works to gain God's favor, but as a rule of obedience to live in light of his favor as it's seen in Jesus Christ. 
We also saw that the new covenant brings an intimate knowledge of God that the law never could. And lastly, we saw that the new covenant comes with better promises, a better mediator who secures forgiveness, right? We saw that Jeremiah had prophesied and told there in Jeremiah 31, the day would come when God would cut this new covenant and he would remember their sins no more. And that's exactly what he's done in Jesus Christ. He, he remembers your sins no more. Now, you remember them. Now, your heart condemns you. But aren't you, aren't you grateful, church, that First John says to us, even if our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our heart. God is greater than your experience. God is God. And God has procured so great a salvation for you. He's given you his own son, his most precious thing he gave. See, the lover always gives what's best to the one who he loves. Well, today we're going to look at and continue to look at how the the inadequacies of the old covenant are met in Jesus Christ, in his person and work. We're told there in 8.13, in speaking of the new covenant, this is the intro into chapter 9, In speaking of a new covenant, God makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Now let's look. It's imperative that you would have an open Bible before you because I'm going to make some uh, changes, tweaks in the translation because I do think the ESV, while faithful, is not as clear syntactically as it could be. So I just want to tweak it in places. So listen and follow along as I read it. This is God's holy word. The most important thing you'll hear all week is what I'm doing, reading the word of God. Now even the first covenant, that is the the Mosaic covenant, had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness. For a tent, you could translate a tabernacle, was prepared or or set up the first section or first room in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section or, or room called the most holy place, also known as the the holy of holies having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold in which was a golden urn or jar holding or containing the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations, having thus been made, the priests go regularly, or better translated, repeatedly, into the first section or first room, that is the holy place, performing their ritual duties. But into the second, that is the second room, the holy of holies, the most holy place, the high priest goes, but he goes once a year. And not without taking blood, which he offers for himself 
and for the unintentional sins of the people, that is, the sins committed in ignorance, verse 8, by this the Holy Spirit indicates the way into the holy places is not yet opened, as long as the first tabernacle or section is still standing, which is symbolic or illustrative for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the the time of Reformation or the the time of the the new order, the, the time of the new covenant as it's now found in Jesus Christ. Well, that ends the reading of God's holy and infallible word. May he add his eternal blessing to it. Now let's go and ask the Holy Spirit who's been promised in the new covenant to come and be our teacher to teach us what he wants us to know from his holy word this morning. Let's pray. Our God, we have no other good but you. Lord God, you're the teacher of the church. True, you equip men, you ordain men to fill that role as pastor-teacher. But Lord, unless the Spirit comes and gives illumination to the word he's breathed out through the apostles and prophets, no matter how eloquent, no matter how gifted the teacher, our labor is in vain. Come and meet with us, holy God, in your holy word, by your Holy Spirit, that we in turn might be a holy people in Jesus Christ. Lord, we ask this. Give me wisdom and courage to proclaim the whole counsel of God, to spare nothing back from these people that you love. I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our great high priest, the Lord, our righteousness. Amen. Church, what do you do when your conscience, when your conscience feels dirty? Your conscience. This week I've been thinking about this concept of conscience, and you would not believe how difficult it was to, to find a, a working definition of the word conscience. I searched high and low. I found one. I don't know that it's great, but it's going to suffice today. Your conscience is that spiritual dimension of the image of God and his holy law indelibly inscribed on our souls by which we feel guilt and conviction when we do wrong and comfort and joy when we do right. Let me give it to you one more time. That spiritual dimension of the image of God and his holy law indelibly inscribed on our souls by which we feel guilt and conviction when we do wrong and comfort and joy when we do right. Everyone here this morning knows exactly what it feels like when your conscience is dirty. You go home at the end of a long day. It's been taxing. You're emotionally spent. You've had to deal with other other sinners. And the closer proximity, the higher the chances of sin being made manifest as you rub against sinners with your sin and their sin. 
Husbands, those harsh words that you spoke to your wife this day. You go to bed and you think, ah, what did I do that for? I was such a fool. She's the crown of my life. She's my joy. Riches and honor come from your parents, but God and God alone gives a man a godly wife. Or dads, perhaps you've been a little too angry and you've exasperated your children. You meant well. You had the the best of intentions. I really believe that. I, I know I do oftentimes have great intentions. It's just in the execution. It's in the delivery that I fail, the way I communicate discipline to my children. Or wives, that husband of yours, he is sometimes lame. Yes, that's true. And you've asked him to do X, Y, and Z, and he's failed at it, and you continue to nag. And the drip continues to drip, and it drips, and it drips. We had a lot of dripping yesterday, didn't we? A lot of dripping. Sitting by the window, my power went out, and I was listening to the drips. Kids, when mom and dad have asked you to clean your room and you do it begrudgingly, you do it with complaining and and sourness, you see, you can still do the right thing and do it in the wrong way. Do all things without complaining and arguing. All things. Not just some things, all things. Ponta, all things. We all know what it's like to have a a conscience that condemns us. And what's so incredible is that the problem of a dirty conscience that affects and perplexes us has affected every son and daughter of Adam since the fall. You see, the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart, isn't it? It really is the problem. It's behind the sternum. That's where all the problems reside. Last time we saw that the law has no answer for the sinful Adamic heart. It has no answer for the, for the cancer that is sin, that metastasizes. The law cannot do it. As we're told in chapter 7, verse 19, the law perfects nothing. Memorize that. I want you to memorize that. I'm going to come up to you just randomly and ask you, what does Leviticus 7, 19 say? It says the law perfects nothing. The Apostle Paul describes it this way as he explores this concept of how law works with sin. You see, law makes sin all the more sinful. Right? The law comes and says, don't do it, and what do you want to do? You want to do it. Listen to Paul in Romans seven thirteen. But sin, in order to be recognized as sin, produced death in me through what is good. And what is good in this context? The law. So that through the commandment, sin might become sinful beyond measure. Kind of like the radiologist, he he brings us in and takes the x-ray and he says, your femur's broken. It has no remedy to fix it, but it exposes it. But the law does something even more, it excites it. It puts kerosene on it in a way. Sinful beyond measure. Listen to Galatians 3, 21 to 22. Paul, arguing as he will with himself and with the Galatians. Well, what's the purpose of the law then if it just condemns? Listen to Galatians 3, 21 to 22. 
Is the law therefore contrary to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if the law had been granted with the ability to give life, then righteousness would certainly be on the basis of the law. But Scripture imprisoned everything under sin's power so that the promise might be given on the basis of faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. The law comes and it imprisons us. It doesn't give us any hope. I have no hope in the law. What must I do to be saved? Like the Philippian jailer. I've been cut. I've seen the holiness of the triune God. What must I do to be saved? Not the labors of my hands. The old covenant was designed to expose this sinfulness of sin and and to point the people of God to to the seed. What seed? The seed of Genesis 3.15. The seed of Abraham in Genesis 12, through whom all the nations of the earth would be blessed. The seed of Abraham, Jesus Christ, who through his perfect life and and death and burial and resurrection and ascension and intercession might deal with the problem of the heart, which is the heart of the problem, might deal with sin's guilt and, and sin's power once and for all with finality. And in here in Hebrews 9... The preacher continues to to make his case on the inadequacy of the Old Covenant because, you know, remember now, these folks want to go back to the Old Covenant. They want to go back to that which is familiar. They want to go back to religion because, see, religion can be controlled. You're in the steering, you're behind the steering wheel. Ritual, do's and don'ts put you in the driver's seat. When you come into the Holy of Holies, the most holy place, you're not in the driver's seat. You come before the living God, and religion is not going to suffice. Your obedience is not going to get the job done. You need a better priest, a better tabernacle, a true Israel, a better Adam, whose blood speaks a better word than a blood of judgment the blood of Abel. He's going to show us here that it's the blood of Jesus that can deal with a dirty conscience as he shows us the inadequacy of the old covenant in Moses with, as he compares it to the adequacy of Jesus Christ and his priesthood. So first, let's look at the inadequacy of the earthly tabernacle. Notice how he begins. He's just spoken of the the new covenant, how it's made the the old covenant obsolete, but he's not quick just to disregard the old covenant. He still understands God uses it. It was important for its season, but it's no longer valid. He reminds his readers that the old covenant had particular regulations regarding the worship of God. You see, God gave Moses detailed instructions on exactly how Israel was to worship and where they were to worship. Unlike the nations, Israel 
was not to worship God however they wanted. You see, worship in the Old Covenant, just like in the New Covenant, we're not innovators. We're not avant-garde. We're not just going to do whatever we feel is right in our own eyes. That's not how you worship God. You worship God according to His prescribed Word. He regulates worship. He's the Holy Lord of heaven and earth. And those who will worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in what? Truth. The truth as it's discerned from His Word. A failure to abide by God's commands and instructions always led to grave consequences in the Old Covenant, just as in the New Covenant, for that matter. Think of Leviticus 10, verse 1. Nadab and Abihu, you remember them? Sons of Aaron, had tremendous intention. Do you know that this week, I just read this, this, this week, that Nadab and Abihu were two of the 70 men who went to dine with the triune God with Moses. They supped with him. And just within a matter of years, they're thinking it's a keen and cool idea to offer strange fire to the living God. We're told that the fire of the Lord went out against them and he struck them dead. How about Korah's rebellion there in Numbers 16? How did it go for Korah and his family and his little ones? as they began to challenge the authority that God had established with Moses. Who is this Moses guy? Surely all of us can lead, can't we? Didn't go well. Or how about Uzzah? Remember Uzzah there in 2 Samuel chapter 6? They were carrying the Ark of the Covenant, but they weren't using the poles. That the book of Leviticus and Exodus had outlined, that regulated. This is how you're going to carry my, my, my ark when you carry it. They thought it would be a good idea this morning to put it on, the, on the, the cart of an ox. We're told that as it going along, it, it hit a little pothole. And Uzzah just went to grab it to catch it. And you know what happened? The fire of the Lord went out and consumed Uzzah. God is holy, church. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And the angels, think about this, the angels never tire of saying that. Never tire. Since the first day of their creation, the cherubim, the seraphim, the angels cry holy, holy. They cover their sinless eyes in the presence of the living God. Like Isaiah, I'm undone. Oh, woe is me. Woe is me. Not out there. In here. Woe are we. Woe are we. The Lord God Almighty. You see, the Lord is holy. And at the center of of God's holy worship in the Old Covenant was the tabernacle. We're told in verse 1, it was an earthly place of holiness. Not just an earthly place, but a earthly place of holiness. The, the tabernacle was a tent. It was a mobile tent where the people of God were instructed to, to offer sacrifices, where, where the priests would go and make intercession on behalf of the people. There's a picture of it I put for you in the bulletin. I'm not one to use pictures. 
But given our lack of biblical uh, literacy, I just thought it might be helpful. So you might want to think about this picture as I'm, I'm kind of exploring some of the concepts and some of the, the, uh, the architecture of the tabernacle. Within the tabernacle, there are two sections, there are, there are two rooms. The, the first section was called the holy place, which held the, the lampstand, the menorah. And every morning and evening, the priest would go and attend to the lampstand to make sure that it would not be put out. You see, there were no lights in the tabernacle. That was the only light. And it burned continuously. Right? Lampstand here, most commentators believe, is a picture of Christ, who's a picture of the light of the world. And also within the holy place, we're told, was the, the table and the bread of presence. This was the, the 12 loaves of bread that the Levitical priests would bake every Sabbath. We replaced the old loaves and consumed those and reminded Israel of God's constant provision. These loaves, according to Leviticus 24, were baked fresh each week. They were holy. These loaves were holy unto the Lord. This was the very bread that, that David's men partook of. Remember when he was hungry and he was running from Saul and he needed something to eat? And he goes and he partakes of the, the bread of presence. Again, typologically pointing to Christ, the bread of life. And from there, the preacher in verses 3 to 5 moves on to describe the, the second room, or the second section. It's called the, the most holy place or the holy of holies. Behind the curtain separating the holy place from the most holy place, the author mentions two pieces of furniture. Notice he mentions the, the altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant. Now, if you know your picture and you know your Bible, more importantly, you know technically speaking... The altar was not located, the golden altar of incense was not located in the most holy place, but rather in the first section, the holy place. So was the author confused? What's going on here? I don't think so. Rather, the author here is associating the altar of incense with God's presence in the most holy place. Why? Because he's trying to stress, as he's contrasting, in showing the superiority of the new covenant and the access that we have to God into the most holy place, into the holy place, the holy of holy places, right? He's trying to show that the close proximity of the altar of incense with this most holy place was a key feature on the Day of Atonement. You might recall that it was Zacchaeus, I mean, rather, Zacharias in Luke 1 that was serving in the holy place and the altar of incense when the, the angel Gabriel announced to him that his wife, Elizabeth was going to give us birth to a son. And this son was John the Baptist. This was the altar at which Zacharias was working and serving. But behind the veil, right, the, the second veil, was the most holy place, which contained the Ark of the Covenant. Now this is the, the gold-covered rectangular box with a slab of pure gold on top. And that slab of pure gold was called the mercy seat. And hovering over the mercy seat were two golden figures of cherubim, angelic beings standing guard. It was here that God had said in Exodus 25, 22, there I will meet with you, and from above the seat, mercy seat, I will speak with you. But notice that the Ark of the Covenant functions almost as a memory chest as well. Notice there's stuff inside of the Ark of the Covenant. Notice there's a jar inside the Ark of the Covenant. What's in the jar? Manna. 
reminding the people, again, that God would provide. God was their provider. He had provided in the wilderness. He'll provide for them going forward. We're also told that Aaron's rod that had budded was placed there. Also the tablets of the covenant, right? These were the ten words, the the covenant document, right, that the great king had given to his vassal servant Israel. The suzerain king had given to Israel legal documents proving that Israel was in covenant with Yahweh, the covenant Lord. And notice what the preacher says there in verse 5. Of these things we cannot speak in detail. Now we might want him to speak in detail, but he didn't. So if you want to read more about it, Go to Exodus 25 to 26 this afternoon. That's a great section of Scripture that describes the, the furniture within the tabernacle. But all of this, the, the tabernacle and the furniture, I want us to see this, this big picture, was, was typological. It was temporary. It was provisional. Right? It was pointing beyond itself to the heavenly realities in Jesus Christ. Beloved, the Ark of the Covenant represented the presence of God. And in one sense, he was present, right? He was present. God would come in the pillar during the day, the pillar of the cloud by day, and the pillar of fire by night. He was present with his people. But his presence in the Old Covenant pales in comparison to his presence now in the New Covenant in Jesus Christ. You see, the shadow is never as good as the object In Christ, the reality, the substance of the covenant has now come. So the old covenant is now obsolete. It was restricting in the way that people could worship, right? Only the high priest once a year could go into the Holy of Holies. You see, and the preacher wants these struggling Christians there to know that they cannot rely on the earthly tent to solve their sin problem, to bring them into the presence of God. Well, that leads to the second thing, and we're going to conclude this morning with some applications on the conscience and cleaning of the conscience, but it's important that we work through the text. Notice, secondly, the inadequacy, not only of the tabernacle, the place that the people were commanded to worship, but also the priests that served in the ministry in that tabernacle, in verses 6 to 10. Notice how the focus shifts now to the ministry of the priest. The normal priests spent a lot of their time in the outer section, right, the the holy place. But we're told in verse 6, they performed their ritual duties, right? What were some of their duties? They were bringing sacrifices. They attended to the lampstand. They they made sure the bread was there. And we're told in verse 6 that they did this regularly, which I translated repeatedly, right? That is, the priests did this over and over and over, daily, weekly, monthly, yearly, for hundreds of years. All of this showing Israel that the blood of bulls and goats, this whole system, the whole Levitical setup was not bringing what it promised. That the blood of bulls and goats could not wash away sin. It was inadequate In addition to the work of the ordinary priests, we're told in verse 7 that only the high priest would go into the most holy place, but once a year, and not without taking blood, both for himself and for the people. Right? Leviticus 16.2, we read it. Luke, I mean, rather, Wes read it earlier. 
Remember when uh, Moses is instructed to tell his brother? Notice what he says in Leviticus 16.2. Tell your brother Aaron not to come at any time into the most holy place. Don't come behind the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark lest he die. Lest you be consumed. You see, even Aaron, the high priest, could not go into the holy of holies without the fear of death. This whole system, the tabernacle structure, the two rooms, the, the holy place, the most holy place, the repetitive process, we're told in verse 8, by this whole system, right, the two rooms, the repetition, daily, weekly, annually, by this system, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy place is not yet opened as long as the first tabernacle is still standing, which is symbolic of the present age. You see, saints, the, the Levitical system itself was teaching the people that the work of the priest would only come to an end when something or someone better would introduce a better way, a reformation. That's what he says. It's what he calls it. A new and a better way, a right way, a way that actually could, could secure what it foretold, what it foreshadowed. A new dawn, a new age would come with the arrival of a better covenant, a better promise, and a better priest. Beloved, even the Holy Spirit was longing for the day when the final sacrifice would come. And as long as there was a curtain between the holy place and the most holy place, the people's access to the holy God was denied. Denied. Even if you were a priest, you might be able to make it into the holy place. But you couldn't come into the most holy place. And then, even then, if you were the high priest, you could only do it once a year. All of this was teaching the people the inadequacy of the old covenant. That the old covenant had run its course until the time of the new order which has come in Jesus Christ. You see, Christ has brought the old covenant to the end. The new covenant has arrived. When Christ died, the veil separating the most holy place from, rather, the most holy place from the holy place was torn from top to bottom. Remember that? When he died, when Jesus Christ died on that Good Friday, the, the temple veil was ripped from top to bottom. When he cried out, it's finished. And now not only do we have access into the holy place, we can come into the most holy place. Because the blood of Jesus Christ calls us to come. We have direct access. That's why Hebrews 4.14 says, Let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace and find what? Mercy for our time of need. Oh, beloved, we need to take advantage of the access we now have. Men longed, women longed, the saints of old longed to see what we see, what we can experience. We can come into the holy of holies, crying, Abba, Father, with reverence and familial fear of who God is because we're adopted sons in Jesus Christ. You see, notice what he says. He goes on in verse 9 to, to elaborate. While the gifts and sacrifices offered on the Old Covenant were approved by God, we know in verse 9 that they could not perfect the conscience of the worshiper. Sure, they can clean you up. They can sanctify you. 
They can make you outwardly acceptable to one another, but they cannot clean the wickedness of your heart. They cannot present you before God spotless with great joy. Only Jesus Christ can do that. You see, all the religion in the world cannot address the the problem of the heart. The blood of bulls and goats repeatedly given, all your religious experiences, all your rituals cannot clean your dirty conscience. The problem is dire. Humanly speaking, we're without hope. We're without God, but God in Jesus Christ. He's come and given life from the dead. What we need is perfect human blood, the perfect blood of a better Adam, a truer Israel. And in Christ we have just that. God has given us that. Blood that has the power to cleanse the the vilest sinner. No matter what you've done today, you can be forgiven. You can be washed clean from all your sin. No matter what you thought this morning can be washed away. If you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you. Oh, beloved, Jesus Christ has come to cleanse the conscience. Religion's answer to a dirty conscience. Here it is. You're you're obviously feeling guilty. You're feeling dirty. You're feeling defiled. What do you do? You you go to work for God. You, You give more. You serve more. You clean yourself up. You get religion. But the gospel's answer to a dirty conscience is first of all, you need to know that the real problem is not just that you you feel guilty. That's not the real problem. You know, the real problem is not that you feel guilty, but that you are guilty. You're hell-deserving people, just like me, without hope, without God. All the religion in the world cannot cleanse your conscience. It cannot wash the vilest sinner clean. You're guilty. We need to receive Jesus Christ afresh. We need to abandon ourselves to his finished work at the cross. You see, the only solution to a dirty conscience this morning is the shed blood of Jesus. It's the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus at Calvary when he shed his blood. That perfect, truer Adam, better Israel blood. That obedient blood that never sinned in thought, word, or deed. Jesus Christ, do you know Jesus Christ? Are you trusting in that blood, that finished work for you in his life, his death, his resurrection? Charles Simeon did. He was a 19th century English minister. He was reading Leviticus 16. He was reflecting on the high priest there. You might remember when Wes was reading it, how there were two goats, the Aziel, which was the scapegoat, and the goat that would go to the altar and be sacrificed. And he was reading how the high priest would lay his hands on on the scapegoat, symbolizing the transfer of guilt from the people to the sacrifice. The high priest, representing the whole corporate Israel, would confess the sins of God's people. And that goat would be sent into the wilderness. And he's reflecting on that. And he says, the thought came to my mind. What? May I transfer all my guilt to another? Has God provided an offering for me that I may lay my sins on the head of another? Then God willing, I will not bear them on my soul a moment longer. Accordingly, I sought to lay my sins upon the sacred head of Jesus Christ. 
Friend, what's keeping you from laying your sins on the head of Jesus Christ? Now, it's folly and foolishness to the world. They mock it. They ridicule it. They think of it as weak and shameful. But, beloved, it's the power of God into salvation. To those of us being saved, it's a sweet fragrance. It's a sweet aroma of Jesus Christ. Is there a sweeter name in all the English language than Jesus? Friend, what's keeping you away from God this morning? Your sense of guilt. Jesus can make your soul clean. He can cleanse your conscience. Today is the day of salvation. So with confidence, we now draw nigh. And Abba, Father, Abba, cry. Just like the hymn writer says. May he give us grace to do that as we come to the table. Let's pray and ask this blessing.